The memo is the feel-good baby edit to make big decisions easy. As you prepare for a happy home life with your newborn, or if you're looking for a gift for the mums and babies who you can't drop by and cuddle just yet, deciding what to buy and what really is essential can feel truly overwhelming. The memo has done the hard work for you. It's a feel-good and effortless online retail destination with an edit of the best, the brightest and the most loved baby brands on the planet for now and tomorrow. They've cut through all the noise and done the trialling and reviewing for you, selling only the stuff you need. Some are eco-aware, some just work best and all look beautiful. The Memo offers a free 30-day trial, free delivery for orders over $150, as well as gorgeous feel-good gifts that can be delivered safely and directly to the new mums in your life. All Glow Journal listeners can receive 10% off their first order by using the promo code GLOWJOURNAL at checkout. Simply head to www.thememo.com.au, that's M-E-M-O, and use the promo code GLOWJOURNAL, all caps, for 10% off your first order. Hello and welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founders of Bybee Beauty, Elsie Rutterford and Dominika Minerovic. This was one of those conversations where a week on, I am still buzzing and thinking about every single thing that I learned. Elsie and Dominika are almost disarmingly open and honest about their beginnings in business and everything that they said, particularly surrounding funding for women in business and also around global attitude to sustainability will be ingrained in my head for quite some time. After meeting in ad sales, London-based Elsie and Dominica bonded over a mutual interest in the wellness movement that was only just beginning to gain a bit of traction at the time. Their interest in wellness prompted them to start looking at the ingredients they were putting on their skin. And in 2015, their website, Clean Beauty Insiders, was born. In the same way that you might swap beauty advice or a recipe with a girlfriend, Clean Beauty Insiders became the globe's go-to destination for, as the name suggests, clean beauty advice and for recipes for skincare products that you could make at home. Elsie and Dominica both began to study formulation science and in 2016 their following was so large that they attracted the attention of a literary agent. Their book, Clean Beauty, was published in January 2010. A book that had been to option was bid on by every single publisher Elsie and Dom had pitched to and was won by Penguin, no less. Later that year, Bybee Beauty was born, arguably the first clean beauty brand to lead with a message about performance and science rather than just the fact that it was a clean beauty brand. Bybee launched onto ASOS, one of the largest e-commerce platforms of all time, and is now stocked in beauty retailers globally. As impressive as the Bybee story is, what I found even more impressive was just how forthcoming Elsie and Dom were with all of their knowledge. 
Their approach to both beauty and business is absolutely no BS. And the way that they talk about financing and pre-seed funding and even just surviving when the business was in its lean years is the kind of conversation that women need to be having. Money has long felt like this really taboo topic, but I think that the more open conversations that we, particularly women, can have around finance, the more financially empowered we can all be. The other thing that really sets Bybee apart is its sustainability practices. Until recently, when I thought about sustainability, my mind went straight to product packaging. But there is so much more to it and the way Bybee are working to make change has really made me take a look at my own habits. And I think that's one of several really, really important things to come out of this conversation. I'm interviewing two women here and you will hear Elsie answer first, but if you are still a bit confused about who is who, you can follow along with the full interview transcript on glowjournal.com. Naturally, given the state of the world at the moment, this interview did take place on Zoom across continents, so the audio is far from studio quality. But please persist, please hang in there because this conversation is rich and valuable and one I really am proud to be sharing. In our chat, Elsie and Dominica share the steps they took to secure investment prior to Bybee's launch, how you can really know if the time is right to leave your full-time job for your startup, and the clever way they bring new customers into the Bybee fold. You both grew up interested in beauty, but I understand it was in quite different ways. Elsie, you've spoken before about how makeup kind of became, I guess, a part of your outfit pretty much as soon as you were old enough to wear it. Whereas Dominica, your interest was kind of more the skin side of things, doing little DIY spa days at home, which I can absolutely relate to. I like to start, though, by rewinding back about as far as we can possibly go. So what are your first memories of beauty? Yeah, this is um, a funny one, actually, because I just saw that um, Longcom have just re-relaunched their uh, jelly. Do you remember the Juicy Tubes? Absolutely. Like lip glosses. Mm -hmm. They've just like relaunched them, which I just feel is like nostalgia at its best. Um, And those lip glosses were definitely up there in my like earliest memories of beauty. Just having like going to school with like every color and shade of them, like the bright red, the orange, like, and they always smell amazing. And you're just walking around with these like really like quite not that practical, like sticky lips with your hair, like sticking to oh, them. Absolutely. <laughs> the tack on them. is just, I yeah, mean, it's like anything. glue. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess like for me, it was those kind of, and, and you know what, like rewinding the clock back even further, one of my earliest memories of beauty is, is hair mascara. And I used oh. to do um, the two like front bits of my hair. And this is, this is like young, this is like primary school. Um, in various colours but usually quite like garish and not particularly attracted sort of greens and blues. Um, I would do a hot pink. We mm, had a name over here for those two strands but I won't say it because it's quite rude. (laughs) Go on. (laughs) We'll we'll take that one offline. (laughs) Australia, what do we do next? (laughs) 
Um, so yeah, that for me was just like experimenting with really like cheap and random, but quite vibrant different bits of makeup at school with all my mates. I think that that was my like beginnings of beauty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think my I think my first lip gloss was the Body Shop those mm. pots, the like he, like heavily fragranced ones. Um, yeah. I, that was like my year six, just like dousing my lips in those um, and yeah, getting all my hair stuck in them and <laughs> not being very cool. Um, I would say my first makeup memory was um, I grew up in Australia. So I, I remember sitting on the floor of Target um, in front of like all the like Maybelline and like all of those counters and then like covering my hands in foundation, like trying to find my shade <laughs> and just like getting you know horrific horrifically wrong and then buying a sponge and thinking I was like applying really and I, I mean I had incredible skin when I was 14 I don't know why on earth I thought I needed a full face of foundation <laughs> um but yeah no I remember that you know that excitement of, of buying my first like makeup bits and and trying everything on and feeling really grown up um but yeah, I think I've always loved beauty. And for me, you know, as you said, it was like kind of the spa things. I, I Even in lockdown, I thought, you know what, I'm going to get back to my roots and give myself a pedicure. So I got a little kit off Amazon. I'm going to do all the like cuticles and the buffing. I used to love that when I was younger. Like I would spend Sundays just giving myself a pedicure. <laughs> Loads Nails of friends, and... obviously. <laughs> but look at you now. Nails have never been my forte. When did you leave Australia? I left um, at, after year 12, so I finished okay. school in Australia. So you would have been here when the Maybelline Dream Matte Mousse was the one foundation. Oh, yes, that, we that mm. pot. <laughs> Impossible to colour match. Every shade, but not one person was wearing the correct one. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I mean, that, that wasn't is... Australian, guys. That was international. That oh, was okay. big, so that big was here in the UK, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And like mm. a kind of muddy stony color I think I went for just oh, the line nice yeah the line, <laughs> the line was around cool. the chin <laughs> if you didn't have an orange face and a white body then what yeah. were you doing who are you <laughs> okay good I'm so thrilled that I'm not alone in that your professional background both of you is in advertising but when you were younger what did you think you would be when you grew up we both had pretty clear ideas on this I thought yeah. I was going to be an actress, oh. um, which then like sales and then becoming an entrepreneur, I feel like I act like pretty regularly, <laughs> like you have to, you put on a front like the whole time basically. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I had, I thought I was going to go to RADA and I was going to be like, yeah, big. Um, and then I studied it at uni and decided that um, my fellow classmates were a bunch of take that offline um and just not not the kind of people that I I did I just thought they were all like over the top thespians and it wasn't a world that I wanted to be in and I wanted to make money so mm. I figured it probably wasn't the right course for me I love that you wanted to make money so you've launched a business <laughs> yeah it's, it's I mean that's that 10 years back <laughs> yeah yeah we're hoping one at one point it will pay off <laughs> still waiting but we'll see <laughs> oh god okay so you wanted to act yeah I I wanted to be a journalist mm -hmm. um, similarly realized that it was really badly paid 
pivoted and worked in book publishing also really badly paid um and then went into sales as well but i i was always writing i loved english i was always about reading and and all that kind of stuff so for me yeah when i was in high school i was committed to being a journalist and then um <laughs> didn't quite pan out that way but you know good we both have good skills good foundation skills elsie yeah, is almost I know how to write a sentence. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, both wonderful, wonderful skills. <laughs> You've done the right thing. So if my research serves me, you met each other around 2012, 2013, when you were working in ad sales. I, while we're on skills, I imagine the skill set necessary for a role in that world would come in very handy when launching a brand. So are there any specific lessons that you took from that time that you find you are still applying to your work with Bybee now? Yeah, definitely. We talk about this quite, well, not a lot, but we have talked about um, our past jobs and how they've been quite handy because we both, the, we both went into sales quite early once we'd, you know, lost the pipe dream of the acting and the journalism. Um, we both kind of pivoted quite hard, like age 21 and, got on got into a call center kind of sales like we were in we we've done some pretty like pretty dirty sales <laughs> like the center. The lowest yeah. Of the low, yeah rough and ready um but i mean you know that by the time we'd met we had upgraded slightly to um ad sales but <laughs> slightly we weren't, we weren't in the call center anymore <laughs> Um, it goes like but, call yeah. centers, recruitment, and then ad sales. It's like the hierarchy of sales. Yeah. And then I don't know what's above. No, wait, estate agents are like in there somewhere. Mm, yeah. <laughs> We've not done that though. Um, but skills, yeah, loads. Um, I mean, you know, even working in call centers, like the tenacity, um, the commitment, and the persuasion that you need to close a deal over a phone and persuade that person and this is like almost pre-internet to give you the bank details over the phone <laughs> like I'm sorry but that is mastery I I yeah that stuck with us um you know you're constantly pitching we pitch we're we're on pitch mode the whole time running a business um and learning how to pitch you know once we'd met each other in media we were running like you know, big pitch meetings, pitching for pretty big ad spends as well um, to some like large advertisers um, internationally. So I think those skills of like being able to hold your own in a meeting um, and again, being able to be persuasive and close a deal and all of that kind of stuff is, has been so useful. And we meet founders all the time who, um, you know, they've got the flair for product and they've got this amazing idea, but that side of things, that being able to kind of like sell yourself and sell your idea, they really fall down on. So I think we, yeah, we were, we were lucky coming from that background. It's definitely served us well. And it, it means that we can comfortably walk into a room with an investor or a retailer um, or a prospective, you know, candidate that we want to hire. And we're able to quite like comfortably sell the idea, sell the business. And yeah, that's been very, very useful. Hmm. On meeting, you connected over the wellness movement that was really just kind of beginning to gain a bit of traction at that time. But I feel like it's one thing to have this mutual interest and to connect over that. But it's another thing entirely to think, 
we could potentially start working on something together. So what do you think it was about one another that really drew you together beyond just being workplace friends? Yeah, I think we've always been super ambitious. So I think in the back of each of our minds, we've always wanted to start our own venture and be entrepreneurs. Um, I think you know, working in sales is very entrepreneurial. You're kind of in charge of your own patch, you're in charge of your own revenue. It's very similar to, to kind of owning a business in a, in a certain way. So I think that because we were successful at that, we thought, can we take this to the next level and actually, you know, think about running a business? Um, and I think, you know, we, we were always comfortable with the idea of doing it together because, you know, we had worked together. So we were able to assess each other's work ethic, you know, work with each other in a professional environment um we were colleagues you know we respected each other from a work perspective so I think it just built a really good foundation um, for then a business partnership um, and the idea in terms of building a business evolved really naturally you know when we started clean beauty insiders back in 2015 um, it was really unique and the market in the UK was so dire that we were like, let's just, let's just see what we can do because at this point, you know, no one was really making natural beauty cool. It was very nuts and berries, granola, um, no mainstream beauty consumer would ever consider, you know, using natural products in, in the shape or form that they were being presented. But, you know, we were 20 somethings living in London looking for great skincare. So we thought if we are interested in this movement, could we share content that would appeal um, to people like us? So, you know, it wasn't necessarily like, oh, we're going to launch a skincare brand in three years. It was more like, hey, let's start an Instagram and just like start sharing content and see where it goes. Um, and it and it went and it picked up really quickly. And, and I think, you know, we were really excited about the traction um, and we thought, let's, let's continue this. We started generating revenue from a content perspective quite early on. We were always experimenting with different things. We always had different ideas about how we could monetize um, the content that we were producing and it started to work. And then, you know, we had built up enough of a following that we were able to attract a literary agent and a book deal. And at that point we were like, okay, this, this is actually a business now. You know, we can justifiably say that there's commercial value in what we're doing. Um, so let's, let's continue. Let's, um, let's devote more of our time and more of our energy and see where it goes. God, that's such good advice to actually take the time and look at what you're doing before you say, okay, yeah, this is a business. This has got legs. I feel like yeah. there's so much out there that says, you know, if you've got an idea, go for it. And that's all well and good, but there's so much more to it beyond having the idea. Yeah. And I mean, we started the blog in early 2015 and we didn't launch Bybee until August, 2017. So mm two and a half years later was when we actually launched our brand. Um, and we didn't quit our jobs until the end of 2016. So we had spent, you know, we weren't in a rush, but equally we weren't kind of dilly dallying. Um, we both made a decision and, and kind of said, let's go for it. But that was after, you know, a good year and a half and, you know, a book deal with Penguin. It wasn't like we just kind of took the leap. It was quite a calculated leap at that point. Mm. So you did launch Clean Beauty Insiders in 2015. Talk me through, I guess, the lead up to that first launch. At what point did you start kind of pouring over cosmetics labels together and start putting in that groundwork? 
I mean, yeah, it, it came from food. So like you called out, it was this um, something that we were kind of naturally already doing in food. So um, I know that, yeah, it is a bit of a weird thing to bond over, but you know, the UK is like quite far behind um, other um, countries when it comes to this kind of thing. And it was quite novel and it was quite interesting watching um, uh, like a quite a healthy movement, like really take hold of the mainstream and a movement that was being championed by these you know back then we didn't call them influencers it was bloggers right and Mm. um when instagram was still kind of like early days it was so interesting for us working in advertising to see people who actually didn't have a background um or um any kind of experience in what they were talking about they were simply sharing their own journeys and building up like huge followings and then bam they'd launch their book or bam they'd launch um their protein bar or their cafe or their deli And, and you know we found that super interesting so um but we kind of equally recognized that that market was becoming um, saturated quite quickly as well. Um, and whilst like we enjoyed making the odd sweet potato brownie um, and sharing a recipe over it, like neither of us were, it wasn't like our true passion point. We were just kind of interested in it. So, you know, naturally being the sort of like entrepreneurial spirits that we were, we were kind of like looking at other industries and made this connection between like beauty and and food and, and the kind of like natural progression that if you started to think about what you're eating, you then start to think about what you're putting on your skin. So us pouring over cosmetic level labels at the beginning was very much an extension of pouring over food labels. Um, But I think the kind of like bringing of it together and doing it together and kind of talking more about it and, and, and creating the beginnings of what then turned into the blog um, was really about like, in the same way that you you share your beauty secrets and um, you you swap your hair mascaras back at school, mm. like um, we were kind of exchanging um, recipes and exchanging ideas and um, exchanging knowledge about what we were learning. Like, hey, did you know that like this cream contains this? Or like, did you know that like this um, eye cream that we've been using for years um, is actually mainly full of water and doesn't really have anything? And, and we were both like super interested in it. and and not coming from backgrounds in it, it was like all new to us. It was a completely new kind of industry. So it started as, you know, WhatsApping each other over the weekends, like, oh, I just made this bath soak and it was so easy. Like, why is no one doing this? We don't, you know, why has nobody thought of doing this before? Why is, yeah, the only thing that exists, like we've already said, is very like nuts and berries. Why is it not speaking to us, like as a mainstream millennial beauty consumer? Um, And then that gradually grew and we were sharing and then, you know, WhatsApps turned into like Saturday morning brunches and maybe after our yoga class we'd like have an avo toast and and talk about like a body butter that we could make and then we started making it together and then and that's where it kind of like so it was it was a hobby it was humble as well um and I think we were very open and honest with ourselves and then our followers later on that you know it was new to us and we were new to the industry and we would make mistakes and I think that was what connected with people as well was just this kind of like transparency in what we were doing and that to us has been really important we've kept that through all the way through to starting Bybee as well this kind of level of like um yeah transparency and honesty and not preaching um Mm. and yeah as we started to share that on the blog with our community and that kind of really resonated as well and um yeah it grew from there that really does come across as a consumer it all feels so honest and so transparent which is very very refreshing in this industry well yeah and I think in the wellness industry as well like that we were kind of looking at and there was this sort of like holier than thou like slightly preachy vibe that went on and also this like 
uber like glossy um like not particularly real or authentic vision of people's lives which neither of us bought into because neither of us are like that we don't live like that like we're not so you know we were kind of a bit anti that we we really um appreciated and valued what the kind of influencer or the blogger were, were building out but equally we wanted to build something that was maybe a bit more relatable and mm -hmm. that again has stuck through with my as well like for us the brand should be relatable it's, we say it's inspirational not aspirational like we want to empower and inspire people we don't want to be like something that they wish that they could be but know that they never could mm -hmm. so you've mentioned that you started like making your own soaps and body butters you launched the blog in 2015 i know that at some point you both studied formulation when did that come into it did you start kind of experimenting with things at home and then look to kind of build on that or was that something you'd already looked into yeah i think we had started experimenting um really enjoyed it and thought can we develop our knowledge um in order to make more sophisticated things basically um because obviously you know cosmetic chemistry is hugely complex and it's uh, you know neither of us obviously come from science backgrounds um so our understanding of things was quite limited um but we we found a real flair for it so we thought you know can we continue um researching and discovering um and we found a great online community um where we were able to obtain a diploma so that's formula botanica and they um focus on kind of organic and natural skincare formulation but um in a very um you know, trained in classical way, you know, we look at preservatives and um, emulsifiers and stabilizers and testing. And, you know, it's not your kind of like DIY hobbyist community. It's very professional. Mm. Um, and that was really important to us as well, because we were trying to give um, this movement legitimacy. So we wanted to do a qualification, share information that was really legitimate um, and safe as well, which is so important. So, um, yeah, you know, it kind of happened alongside the blog building. Um, I think we did it in late 2015 um, prior to writing our book um, because obviously the recipes in the book, still very basic, but needed to be, you know, thoroughly researched and, and thoroughly safe and thoroughly usable. Um, so, yeah, it was it was something that, you know, while we don't formulate now, um, we have, you know, at Bybee, an MPD team, we have a chemist in-house who's a classically trained cosmetic chemist. Um, but, you know, we speak the lingo, we understand ingredients, we understand inkies, we understand the process of building a formula. And I think that's really important as a founder, even if you're not directly involved in that, you can have those conversations um, and understand the technical side of the business as well. Um, you know, similarly, we have no experience in accounting or finance, but, you know, you pick up, you pick up that understanding and, and it's really important as a founder that you can kind of grasp those concepts. Um, so I think from a formulation perspective, it was just super important for us because product is everything. Um, if you don't have great product, you're nothing, <laughs> no matter how great your brand is, no matter how many followers you have on Instagram. So um, we always knew that whatever we did with product, it had to be excellent and superior. Um, and for us, that meant having that knowledge ourselves. Mm. You've used the phrase DIY hobbyist in there, which I think is worth mm. um, touching on. You've mentioned on your own podcast how at the time the bulk of kind of DIY beauty content was kind of coming at it from one of two angles. There was that kind of hobbyist way of like, oh, look what I can do. And it's not really 
doing a whole lot. I think the um, the example you used was when you're a kid and you put like some flowers in some water and go, ta-da, rose perfume, look what I've done. So there's that side of it. And then there's the kind of thrifty budget version of like, you can create a budget version of this product at home. You weren't coming at it from either of those angles and you're still not. It was just out of curiosity and a wish for just better products. I think with that though, whenever you do something that is truly new, which is what you were doing, it's wonderful to identify that gap, but it can take the public a little bit of time to come around to newness. So how was the the public response? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's interesting with the views of DIY beauty. Um, yeah, definitely like either very juvenile or very Etsy um, or I think another like perception of DIY beauty is around safety as well um, a lot of stick mm. that it gets it, um, can be around um, people sharing like information that's actually or like recipes for products that aren't safe because they haven't been like preserved properly ultimately which is right as well um, so there was like a lot of um, there was like a, a big like pre-reputation that we had to kind of like tackle I guess as um, coming into it. Um, I think going back to what I said earlier about our approach to the way that we were sharing our information and our content made like a massive difference in how people then engaged with it. Um, because we were kind of taking this like um, fairly laid back, like very honest and open, um, kind of informative but not preachy approach to what we were sharing and and really owning up to when we made mistakes as well. Like when we uh we're experimenting and made something horrible that smelt disgusting we'd tell everyone about it like we weren't kind of like hiding behind anything and I think that really helped um to kind of like shift people's perceptions around what they may have thought DIY beauty meant um and also you know if you then look to the way we kind of branded things like looking at our book I think our book has also sort of stood the test of time it still looks really beautiful and a lot of thought went into the kind of like branding and um visual like visual identity of um what wasn't even a brand back then you know it was our own kind of personal blog but um again that was very different it was modern it was fresh it was vibrant um it you know it, it looked more like a beauty book and less like a kind of a wholesome um whole foods type style book um mm. and again I think that really resonated with people but ultimately I think the real thing that um that and this is still true now with Bybee but the real thing that kind of really sets you apart and and helps the customer or the whoever's engaging with it to truly understand is performance and what we were saying mm. is we're not doing this for cost although you can have cost savings like we're not doing this for sustainability although like it is a much more sustainable practice we're doing this because we've seen like a true difference and transformation in our skin um and here's what that journey looks like and here are some of the things that we were suffering from and we don't suffer from anymore um and i think that performance anybody engaging with any kind of beauty content does it because they want good skin right if it's skincare you know mm. we do it because it's it's ultimately driven by some form of vanity um that's the industry that we're in and if you can convince people that what you're talking about will work then they'll buy into it and I think perhaps where people have gone wrong in the past with DIY beauty was not focusing at all on any performance so people might have thought oh that's nice that's cute but it's not going to work it's not going to make a difference to my skin and what we were saying was guys this really will make a difference to your skin um and that's the same with Bybee today it's like you know less so now but there was always a bit of a conception around natural and clean and does that work and is it scientific and and for us the performance first message is what we lead with 
this is going to work. Mm. Um, we believe it's going to work because we, we use great natural ingredients, you know. Um, and any messaging underneath that around vegan, clean, sustainable is kind of secondary because first and foremost, you want to believe that it works. And I think we did a good job of convincing people that um, what we what we found that we kind of stumbled across was um, great natural ingredients that lead to better skin. Mm. Well, convince them you did because Clean Beauty Insiders did gain something of a cult following, pun absolutely intended. I would love to hear more about Clean Cult, your beauty festival. When and how did that come to be? Yeah, that was a, a really interesting endeavour. And actually, you know, that was very much part of us experimenting and building the brand. Um, I think for us, again, you know, there were so many beauty festivals going on in London and there was just nothing that catered towards um, this movement that we were building. So we thought, let's create it ourselves, <laughs> um, as we often do. Um, so we um, actually joined forces with another pair of bloggers to run this event. Um, and it was hugely successful. I mean, we ran three in the end um, and each of them were sell out and we had amazing feedback. Um, I think the only thing that held us back from scaling that really was just events are so time intensive um, and, you know, really, really difficult um, to run is when you're kind of doing everything yourself. So we decided to put pause on that and focus on Bybee, which was just about to launch. Um, and Bybee has kind of been our focus ever since. But actually the roots of that festival um, were you know, really relevant and the consumers loved it. And we still get people asking us like when the next clean cult is. So we might have to, we might have to bring it back. But I think again, it was just a validation. It was like, can we then take this offline and can we bring loads of brands together and create an experience where people really understand that natural beauty is about performance and you can come and you can get your nails done and you can get a facial and try loads of great products like you would do you know, if you were going to a glamour beauty festival or beauty con, you know, but it was in, um, you know, an environment which obviously catered um, more towards the brands that were there and, and the experience that we were trying to deliver. Um, but it was it was a great, great experiment for us to show again that there was an appetite for what we were doing. So at this point, you're working full time. You're running Clean Beauty Insiders. I, like, I can't get through it without laughing. You're hosting these clean cold events. And then you start to write the book that you've mentioned, Clean Beauty, 100 Recipes for the Skin, Body and Hair. Like, just a casual 100. <laughs> published, published by Penguin, no less. Yeah. It took me through this time because it's, it's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot, actually. Um, not that things have got any easier. We've still got as much, as so. much on our plate. Um, but yeah, it's um, we, we talk a lot about this. We get asked a lot about this, like when's the right time to quit your job? Um, and I'd say the build up to this was um, a kind of good signpost for both of us that we were, we were gearing up to um, the right time to quit our job because it was just becoming um, unmanageable. Um, and I think like what we tend to say is um, the kind of realization moment was um, we were doing a pretty awful job at not awful job we were doing a good job um, beating ourselves up a bit here but we were struggling to do the best job that we could across our full-time jobs and everything that was going on in clean beauty and something had to give um, because I was working at Facebook at the time which was really full-on um, Dom was pretty much 
Dom was pretty much leading like the European office of like an ad tech startup. Um, so yeah, it was like our day jobs weren't light. Like they weren't like, we weren't like poodling no. in and um, kind of doing half a day here or there. Like it was pretty intense. Um, and then, yeah, writing the book on top of that as well. A hundred recipes, we did really set ourselves up there. A hundred recipes is tough because we had to make them all as well, like try them all, like thoroughly test them all. So um, mm. yeah, it was a it was a challenging time. I think we learned a lot. It it um it set us up well for um the beginnings of our, you know, a flavor, a taste of what entrepreneurship, like what was to come. Um it helped us decipher the point um, of being able to feel comfortable quitting the day job. Um, and I would say to anybody that's thinking about it, um, get you kind of need to get to that point to feel like, you know, mm. to feel like there is enough work to do. And obviously, aside from it being financially, you being financially stable, like we, we were kind of proving to ourselves, to each other, um, that there that this was a business and that there was enough going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, the workshops, we were running like workshops at the weekend and then we would do like a clean cult on a Sunday, which we were like tidying up oh until like 11 p.m. and then straight into work the next day. So and then not really allowed to talk about it with our employers because it's kind of like a bit of a conflict of interest, like on the side, like sat on our desk trying to write a recipe. What You know, it was it was a, a hectic, hectic time and actually quite physically hectic as well, because we were um running these events they and they were quite sort of like we'd be you know we'd be the ones like running up up and stairs with, up and down stairs with boxes and stuff so um but we needed all of that it, it really set us up um to understand what we were getting ourselves into and to say right let's do this we can't go on like this now's the time to you know quit the day job well i also heard that every single publisher that you pitch yeah. the book to place to bid so that must have been a pretty nice feeling and an indicator of like oh okay people do like what we're doing this is nice yeah I mean that helped it went to auction yeah <laughs> my god I, it's unbelievable so the book was published January of 2017 very very big year for you both given that later that year you officially launched Bybee although when I was doing a deep dive, am I right in saying that there might have been an earlier iteration to the tune of a fuss-free moisturizer with labels designed on Keynote? <laughs> God, stop digging. <laughs> You're, uncovering... Pastime. You're uncovering all of our like oh, buried secrets that we pretend didn't happen. Um, yes. Again, you know, we were like, hey, let's just launch products. We were, Why not? We just, yeah. <laughs> we actually took our favourite recipes from um, the workshops and um, the book, the ones that, you know, when we were running workshops, people absolutely loved. Um, and we, oh, God, we've missed one part of this, which was the markets. Yeah. So on top of everything else we were doing over, um, kind of like a six week period, I think it was, we decided to pitch up at, um, a kind, a kind of big market in London and sell our wares. So we had our pots of fuss free and our beauty products, um, that we had handmade, um, and we were selling, which we did really well <laughs> again, just, you know, it's just all about these really small points of, of validation. It's not about going out and raising two million pounds on a pre-seed on an idea. It's about 
hustling at a market and being like, is someone going to pay 15 quid for my pot? <laughs> yeah, it's a good um, indicator. Yeah. You know, VCs will give you money, but will that person fork over that 15 quid? That is the best, you know, test, proof of concept. Um, so, yeah, so we did have an early iteration. Um, we did sell it on Queen Beauty Insider's website. Um, but for us, there was always a bit of a muddy between are we a pro- are we building a product brand on Clean Beauty Insiders or are we building a content platform? And I think for us, launching Vibe was you know, we wanted to shake the shackles of what we had built with Clean Beauty Insiders in a way, which was DIY. It was um, a little bit more basic. It was very centered around natural um, and kind of, yeah, like making things yourself. And we wanted to pivot because what we discovered was a real gap in the market at that point after being in market for a number of years was that there was no one really doing natural ethical skincare, but focusing on performance and delivering it in a way that felt accessible. Mm. Um, and even the early stuff with Clean Beauty Insiders wasn't there yet. It was still very minimalist. It was still very white. Um, what we wanted to do was create a, a mainstream beauty brand, but underpin it with ethics. So everything that we had done up until that point was very much leading up until that light bulb moment of being like, okay, we know that Clean Beauty Insiders works really well, but probably bringing products into the mix is too confusing. So let's let's launch a skincare brand. Why is and this was in the times of you know Glossier was booming. You know this was Glossier's moment um, in kind of like mid 2017, and we were like why is no one essentially doing that kind of like really cool, affordable, accessible skincare, but still maintaining the ethical perspective on it? Because we know that there was an appetite for that. And looking into the market, there were loads of indie brands and, you know, there are many more now, but there was still quite a few in kind of 2017. Desiem was doing really well. You know, you had loads of brands popping up on Instagram. But then none of them really catered towards a more natural audience. Um, Drunk Elephant wasn't massive, but it was still, you know, it was getting there. So Clean was becoming a little bit more well-known and a little bit more universally accepted as delivering on performance. Um, So we just thought we have all of this experience in natural. Let's build a skincare brand. Um, So, yeah, everything that we had done, particularly from a product perspective, was building up to that moment. Um, And Bybee, when it launched, was very different to Clean Beauty Insiders. And that was very calculated from our perspective. So the launch was 2017, but that light bulb moment that you've just talked me through, when was that? How far in advance did... Did that happen? It was, it probably happened kind of towards the end of 2016. Um, and then we spent the early part of 2017 kind of building Vibey. So we went through a different, a few different kind of name, naming stages. Um, we thought about products, we thought about manufacturing, we thought about packaging. Um, and we kind of, again, we kind of soft launched a couple of products to test the market. And then we officially launched in August, 2017, um, with a kind of five skew range. Um, and that went live on ASOS same month. So that was kind of the moment where, you know, Bybee came to town, um, and people really started to recognize the fact that we had, we were building something quite separate to clean beauty insiders, but it's not, it do, it's not a quick process. And, and to be honest, I feel like the brand has been in development <laughs> for years and we're only now just getting to the point where 
I personally feel the brand is, is almost in its finished form. Like it's not easy building a brand. It takes a really long time and actually being in market and being able to iterate is a really important part of that process um, because you never quite know how things are going to go down until, you know, the product is in people's hands and people um, give you feedback on the packaging and the way that it looks and the way that it feels. So I think it's always been an iterative process, but that, that definitely started, yeah, kind of like late 2016. Late 2016, where did you start? You already had a, obviously a really deep understanding of formulation science, but how did you settle on which specific products you would develop and launch with? How did you find a manufacturer and a chemist and decide on the packaging? Like there's a lot to it. Yeah, we, um, it was daunting. Like we didn't, it was difficult to know um, where to start, I guess. I think we, just started to reach out to um, everybody and anybody that we knew that might remotely be able to help us and ended up getting kind of like connections and introductions to various people in the industry that could then guide us and point us in the right direction of, um, you know, a great manufacturer or um, yeah, a great packaging supplier, somebody that could look at our branding. Um, You know, it's actually quite difficult to find um, things like manufacturers as a small brand because you kind of go out thinking that you're now the client you know we were like great Mm -hmm. our roles have switched we're no longer in sales anymore right we we're the ones being sold to um but actually when you're that size a lot of manufacturers won't even look at you um it's not worth their time you know unless you can promise them that you're going to be doing um a large volume of units um it's it's not that interesting to them so in actual fact and we kind of learned this the hard way you know going into meetings with manufacturers it was us having to do the pitching again you know was the other way around and we kind of um got lucky and got a kind of in um where a lot of um, manufacturers weren't even responding to our emails and somebody made an introduction to somebody who's now um still a partner today and who's been um really supportive in our growth and and happy to take a chance on you know a budding young um brand that would could show promise and and kind of like bought into the dream of we're going to be big one day and we're only just moving into um being one of their biggest clients and you know that's taken years to kind of develop Mm -hmm. and it's the same across the board you know we were doing small runs we were looking for small quantities of things and so there was a lot of like selling in the dream and you know saying this might be small now guys but it's it will get bigger we you know we promise um (laughs) and luckily enough you know that got back to our sales and persuasion skills people did buy into it and also because we were doing something different we had a different vision you know we were trying to be a little bit disruptive and um people a lot of people were excited by that particularly in an, in an industry that doesn't change that often or hadn't changed that often up until then um people were kind of like willing to give us a bit of a chance um so we spent a long time mapping out um yeah working with manufacturers like mapping out what the, the range would look like but actually we've missed a bit out we didn't go straight into launching a five um skew range um we realized quite quickly that um that would take a lot longer than we thought at the very beginning somebody said to us it will take you about nine months to get a product product on the shelf and 
we were like no it won't that's rubbish and actually it did um so in the interim we launched a hero skew um babe bomb which is um still alive and kicking today absolutely i just assume everyone's tried it and if they hadn't uh, i will pop a link somewhere to make sure that they do it it's great (laughs) um it is it's a little pot of miracle balm that actually was an iteration of the fuss free moisturizer that you um so rightly referred to um it's like a multi-purpose balm and we actually handmade that at the very beginning so the first samples that anybody saw including the likes of asos were handmade by us with labels that we had printed by a really like small local company jars that we'd sourced by ourselves and obviously we had like a a very like secure hygienic um lab essentially um in east london that we could so it was all legit um, but yeah, again, testament to um, how we've always been a bit like roll your sleeves up and kind of get on with it because we could see that nine months was probably a little bit too long for us to be able to wait without any kind of revenue coming in. So mm. we continued the workshops. We obviously had the book and then we were like, let's just get something to market. Let's just get it into people's hands, see what people think, um, pitch it to retailers. You know, it makes such a difference going to a retail meeting with at least something in front of you rather mm. than just mock-ups of products. And, you know, that got us a really long way and people loved it. People still love it. You know, the name was fun. We launched it with a biodegradable glitter campaign that we sent out to a load of um, journalists and got like probably the biggest amount of coverage we've ever got for a launch on, you know, I mean, the budget was, there was no budget. Like it was, it was tiny, but it was just like a, add some sparkle to your day with biodegradable glitter. Like, you know, here's Babe Bond just launched and people loved it. So that kind of just, we don't rush things like we do we we think things through we um we're very measured in our approach um but equally we don't believe in like sitting and waiting around for something to be perfect like it you you just don't grow you don't learn that way and even if it's wrong and even if you make a mistake it that is how you develop and um evolve as a brand and equally as a team and equally as individuals running a business so that was like a real like early days example of like just doing something just get it get it done do it see what happens there were loads of challenges along the way and it wasn't perfect but we learned loads so yeah that was that was the early days 2016 to 2017. While we're on the early days there's a really really great episode of your podcast in which you talk about getting funding which I really encourage everyone to listen to because it's it's a fascinating listen but you raised pre-seed funding of something to the tune of 150k now obviously you've gone into detail on this elsewhere so in as little detail as you wish how how did we raise the money yeah I don't even know (laughs) again sales skills yeah we we spent probably the summer it was the summer of 2017 fundraising which i think every fundraise gets slightly easier the first one was horrific it was you know we took so many meetings and we had so many people just be like like not interested you know rejecting us rejecting us rejecting us um because we were very very early stage you know um we had a lot to show for what we had done but in terms of the numbers on the paper you know we were we were essentially a pre-launch business so um you know a lot of investors aren't ready for that you know you need to find a, a select group of people that will invest that early on 
Um, but you know, we found them. So we were just, it was mainly through networks to be honest. Um, and I know that's like the cliche every, every entrepreneur will say, don't, you know, value your network. Your network is the most important thing. You've always got to be networking and trust us. They say it for a reason. Yeah. And look, we hate networking. We are literally the two people standing in the corner of the room, like whispering in each other's ear and sniggering. Like we hate networking, but you, it's, it's a necessary evil when you're fundraising. The more people, you know, the more people that you meet with, the more conversations you have, the more you learn um, and the more you're, you have the chance of succeed. It's all about a numbers game. The more people you have in the pipeline and it's, it's sales, it's literally sales 101, which is why I think genuinely we've been able to jump these massive hurdles. We were two female entrepreneurs, you know, the, the level of female mm. funding in the, in globally is like 2.5%. So we're already mm. in this tiny minority of women that get funding not only that, we had no experience in what we were doing. We had no financial background. Our financial forecasts were horrendous. You know, they were literally done in like a Google sheet. Um, but, you know, we, we were able to convince someone that no matter what we lacked in terms of practical experience or skills, we made up for in hard work and passion and that we were going to find a way to be successful. Um, and we had already forged that path for ourselves. So, yeah, you know, we, we met our lead investor for our seed raise um, through a connection. We met her. I think we spoke in an event. She heard us speak, got in touch, took a meeting. We said we're fundraising. She said, I know a couple of people. Let me introduce you. And it, it, it is just that easy. Um, and, you know, obviously we're in challenging times at the moment, but, you know, the, the angel communities, um, there are a lot of people with money that want to support small businesses and, you know, ex-entrepreneurs or people that have made their money get a buzz off, you know, working with young entrepreneurs. So there's always people that will invest and take a chance. You just need to spend the time finding the right people. Um, and you have to take a lot of wrong meetings. You know, you have to kiss the mm. dogs. Um but yeah, we did, we did raise 150 K, which at the time felt like the most amount of money. And it, I mean, it's a huge amount of money to, to invest in, you know, essentially, as I said, a pre-revenue um, early stage business is a huge amount of money. It didn't last us very long. Um, but with that, we were able to, you know, build, start to build out our team. We took on a great branding agency. We were able to pay for our first manufacturing run you know we just kind of like were able to get off the ground and you do need in beauty it is a very capital intensive business to grow and even as the bigger you get the more capital intensive it becomes to be honest so you know funding is 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 really quite an essential part of building a successful big beauty business um so and it's something that we were aware of from very early on so yeah, we, we successfully closed that round and it was a great moment. Um, and then we were able to just, you know, forge on ahead. Mm, and that you did. You're very open and honest about how long that process took and also how long it was before you could actually pay yourself wages. Can you talk a little bit more about that time and any big learnings you took from that first quite lean period? Yeah, I mean, I guess there were a lot of learnings from both uh, like personal finance as well as the business finance. Um, I think, you know, we came into it with um, a mutual agreement on the amount of money that we were both willing to kind of put aside. So it was essentially our investment into the business, although it stayed in our bank accounts, it funded us for the first year while we didn't take a salary. And, you know, we come from sales roles that 
um, were, you know, we were, we were on decent commission checks, you know, that's, that's what sales is all about. Right. So mm. it was a big lifestyle change for us and a, and a big shift, but I think, you know, what, what we did back then, um, which perhaps we didn't even appreciate we were doing, but, um, was be open and honest with each other about, um, you know, talking very specifically about amounts and, and what we thought that we needed to kind of live off. And I think that is really important because if you are, um open and and saying okay i'm not going to take a salary for a while you need to be very realistic about how viable that is to live on because it will get very stressful if it's not um and you know we 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 came into it sensibly like you know we talked earlier about um knowing the right time to quit a huge part of that decision making process was both feeling comfortable that we had enough money to live on and you cannot underestimate that um you you won't make money overnight very rarely will you so you've got to be like really really comfortable um knowing that you can live or you'll you'll be supported or you know however that needs whatever shape or form that will take um you need to enter into it not feeling the strains of personal finances because that will put very different pressures on the business particularly if you're entering into it as a partnership and particularly if your situations might be different as well um, so from the personal side, I'd, I'd say, yeah, kind of a learning was that we were we were, we were thoughtful and, and um, thorough in making sure that we were comfortable from a business perspective. Um, I mean, God, we learned so much. Um, I, key learnings would probably be I would probably bring in external finance help earlier than you think you need it. Um, mm-hmm. Whether that, you know, we're not talking about uh, like hiring a finance director from day one, but um, actually it probably would have made both of our lives a bit easier if we had had somebody um, in the business that could have helped and supported on that side of things. So even if it's, you know, running it by a friend or um, somebody that has experience or even bringing somebody in on a part time basis, like looking for external um, financial help. Uh, or, or kind of financial support when you are fundraising um, is probably quite useful. Um, you know, I would say that we learned a lot about running the business leanly in a lean way, um, <laughs> which is good actually. Bootstrapping is good, um, but mm. equally, I would say you always need to fundraise sooner than you think. So whilst we learned a hell of a lot about bootstrapping the business, there were. T- very tense times where um, the bootstrap was incredibly thin. And (laughs) if we'd started maybe a couple of months earlier, we probably wouldn't have got, you know, it probably would have been slightly less stressful. So, and we've learned that now, like we're going into our our fourth fundraise like pretty soon. And we're both just like, start now, just do it now. Like we, (laughs) you know, don't, don't fundraise when you need to, because um, it becomes stressful if you're running out of money. And second, people can smell desperation. It's a bit like when you're, (laughs) when you're dating and you're like, you're desperate for a boyfriend. It's that like investors just know, and you start making some like pretty poor decisions. Um, And I mean, not that we made any bad decisions, but you can see how people get themselves into situations. So Mm. um, fundraise earlier than you think, lean on and get support earlier than you think it's, it's worth the investment if you're paying somebody just to have a look over things. Um, yeah, I, I would say those are the kind of like key learnings from um, from a financial perspective. God, it's just good, honest advice. This is what we want. Well, so nobody, you... t- nobody says it either. Like, they no, don't. 
like nobody's has just says these things out loud no there was no to tell us when we were like back then so we just felt like we should be the ones like breaking the silence yeah I love it I'm thrilled with those answers <laughs> so you the babe balm was the kind of soft launch ASOS mad for it which is just like it's just mind-blowing to be picked up by ASOS straight away which products came next what were the next like was it five what that came after yeah so we launched a facial exfoliator um that is now called smooth and soothe scrub Mm -hmm. um then we launched a trio of um products one of which is mega mist which is still Mm -hmm. a huge bestseller for us um then we launched supercharged serum um and then we launched a product called detox dust which we have now discontinued which was our powder face mask um which was a great product but again maybe just too early for its time i'm sure actually if we launched it now it would have done really well um but yeah so we had quite a capsule collection um it was very much kind of additional products um it wasn't going after your core kind of like cleanser and moisturizer segment because we were aware that 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 was quite a challenge for like a young brand to steal those really kind of like core core essentials from someone's um bathroom shelf so we wanted to kind of like but bring people into bybee in a softer manner um and we continue to do things like that so through the boosters again um through great price points we bring people into the fold and then we convince them that bybee's great um through efficacy and performance and quality and then they buy our cleansers and our moisturizers um so that's a strategy that's always worked really well for us. But yeah, you know, we had a tiny product range. Um, and with that product range, we um, we launched a couple more products, but um, I think there were our lip products. You know, we we, st- we built a business off of those products that we didn't have a massive assortment. Um, and, you know, we went into a number of retailers with those products and um, yeah, started to, to build a business, which was really exciting. Well, on those retailers, you are stocked, all over the world now. So aside from ASOS, Sephora Australia, Revolve Boots, just a few tiny little little names. Has having these huge international stockists changed the way that you operate and how you develop products at all? Yeah, I think um, we're quite unusual in the way that we develop products because we own it all in-house. As we've said, we've got a chemist, um, we have our own lab, Um, which for a brand of our size is actually quite unusual. Um, And that process is really important to us. We get hugely excited about being involved in that process. Um, We sign off everything on our MPD calendar, every single formula. We will not sign off anything that we don't believe is, you know, is of the standard that we we believe will change skin. Um, So that process is quite unique as it is, and um, we're very proud of that. So we wouldn't, for example, um, work on kind of like co-collaborations with um, retailers where they were coming up with um, the formulation or anything like that that kind of thing doesn't kind of sit in and equally we don't formulate for our retailers we formulate for our customers and I think that is a cycle that brands can get stuck in however definitely yeah and it's, it's a tricky it's a tricky balance because they on the flip side of that I mean they're they're um 
experience and data behind what you know what the customer wants is also hugely valuable so what we try and do is work really openly and collaboratively with them um we've got some great contacts and some great buyers at a lot of our accounts who we can run ideas past you know what do you think about this or you know what do you think about launching an eye cream in july versus october that kind of thing but you know the process is, is very much ours i would say that the main thing that they have really helped us get into better practice and discipline um with is forecasting our mpd calendar further out um, mm -hmm. so we're not working like month on month now we're working year on year which is better, much better and that's not just working with retailers you know that's us growing as a business that's us building up our MPD team we've got a fantastic MPD manager um, but you know a lot of these retailers will have quite long lead times particularly if we're looking at say Sephora Australia where we've got to kind of get it over there as well um, so it's forced us to get into the habit of just um, building out long, longer pipelines um, and thinking much further ahead which is always a good thing to think about but you know on the flip side we're still very reactive and we still can get stuff to market quite quickly if there's something that we truly believe in um our cbd booster for example we got to market in six weeks um you know it was an ingredient that we were like this is outstanding for the skin um and we could turn it around really quickly so um but i think working with larger um retailers you just have to get into like more disciplined ways of working um which can be a little bit alarming and, and difficult as a startup in the early days because you're kind of chaotic and all over the place but working with them from quite early on gets you into those rhythms whether it be operationally logistically from an mpd perspective um that set you up to be a better and um more operationally sound business kind of further further along and um yeah so but yeah they're great retailers they're all great supporters of ours we we love them I would love to hear a bit more about that product development process. How long does it take from conceptualization through to the product being ready for consumers? Oh, it really depends on the product. So, um, you know, there are some products that we can launch really, really quickly. Um, if we I mean, them. six weeks would be an outlier. I yeah, yeah. <laughs> one off. I mean, again, we've just launched a um, an antibacterial hand spray. Um, yes, which is yeah, mm. timely um, and relevant. But again, that took us you know four and a half weeks. Um, that that's an insane you know time to launch a product. Um, the stars have to align for something like that to happen. Um, you know, all the rules have to be available. We have to get the packaging really quickly. You know, we don't have to go through extensive testing. So that's the, the fastest end of the scale. And, and when we want to do something, we can move supremely quickly. On the flip side, you know, we're going to launch an SPF um, in the next month. And, and that has taken us, you know, a year, a year and a half. Um, so there, there's such a variety between the complexity of the products. Um, you know, sometimes we nail a formula from day dot and we can put it straight into testing. Um, sometimes the formula just doesn't want to play ball and we have to keep working at it and working at it and scrap it and start again. And so it, it really depends. But I think the advantage that we have is that we really control that process. Um, and through our sustainability efforts, we handle most of the procurement of our raw materials, our packaging. So when you look at the entire picture of bringing products to market, we have a lot of control over that process. And that's what the key is um, in order to be quick to market. If you're working consistently through third parties that purchase on your behalf or do things on your behalf, you're not going to get that speed because they don't have the impetus and, you know, they tend to be a large organization that has processes, whereas we're a lot smaller, we can just make things happen really quickly. So 
Um, that is our advantage for sure, being a smaller business. And I hope we never lose that essence because there is something magical about just seeing a product that, that needs to come to market is really relevant and being able to do that in, in a matter of weeks rather than months. You've just touched on sustainability there that I think it's super important that we talk about it because it does really sit at the core of Bybee. Can you talk us through some of the sustainability initiatives that you currently have in place? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we have, we've actually just done a big kind of review of our sustainability um, endeavours. We um started out you know sustainability has always been a huge like core pillar to the brand and um we started out just trying to do better um whether that be through packaging choices um ingredient um sourcing um, but the more that we've learned about being in the industry about the processes um the more that we've been able to kind of really build out a robust sustainability strategy and kind of um beacon that you know we can operate around as a as a business um, so for us, we kind of look at um, three key areas of our supply chain. So we don't just focus on packaging like a lot of beauty brands do at the moment. Um, a lot of the conversation is focused around packaging right now. And we just don't believe that's right. There's a, a, a huge and complex supply chain when it comes to beauty and we should all be looking at the entire thing. So we look at our sustainability from seed to shelf. Um, we look at ingredients. We look at the way that the products and manufacturers and manufactured and processed and we look at the materials that we use for our packaging um, each is equally as important as one another um, and the kind of like centerpiece between um, or or um, in in between all of those three um, pillars is around um, carbon emissions um, so we truly mm -hmm. believe that um, the biggest change that we can make to have the biggest impact on our planet, the biggest positive impact on our planet, um, and really help the climate crisis um, is to lower CO2 emissions. Um, ultimately, that is the biggest thing that we can do as a business. So when choosing an ingredient, when choosing a material for packaging, when deciding how, the, how we produce our products, it all comes back to what is the carbon footprint of that. Um, so whether it be the carbon footprint of the way that an ingredient is harvested, whether it be how it's got to us, where we produce everything here in the UK, you know, um, does it need to fly, in which case we won't use it. Um, whether it be a carbon neutral sugarcane material um, that we use for all of our tubes, um, you know, every single decision that we make is centred around um, carbon emissions. And our ultimate goal um, for 2020 is to get to um, net carbon zero. And then 2021 and beyond, we will be putting in um, some targets around significantly reducing our actual carbon. Um, so to get to net carbon zero will be, um, a lot of that will be kind of retrospectively offsetting some of the carbon that's already happened. Um, but that's not the solution. What we need to do moving forward is significantly reduce what we're actually emitting as a brand. It's a very complex piece of work. Um, I guess all the consumer um, needs to know when they're buying Bybee is that um, we choose, we like create beauty products that impact your skin, not your planet. Everything we do is about get great skin with a minimal, minimal impact on planet. Um, there's so much that goes on beneath that, some of it which we talk about, some of which we don't. Um, but if you're more interested, tune into um, our Sassy Summits, um, which we now hold remotely, because um, they're a really good idea. Immerse yourself in the world of sustainability. Um, but for us, it's a war on carbon. We are, we're, we're reducing carbon. That is the, that's the one thing that we can do as a brand to really help. God, I just think that is such a, 
I mean, it's just the right approach because as you've said, so many brands are like, our packaging is recyclable and that's, that's it. And then they put a little green tick on it and just call it a day. Now, you've both been recognised as innovators and thought leaders in beauty and obviously around sustainability as well since 2015. Over the last five years, what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the beauty industry? That's a great question. Um, Probably there hasn't been as many as you would think. Um, I think probably the biggest changes that we've seen, um, is a a shift in attitude towards packaging. So we're seeing a lot more PCR. We're seeing a lot, uh, I wouldn't say a lot less virgin plastic. There's an immeasurable amount of virgin plastic being still produced unrecyclable virgin plastic. Um, but there is a slightly more conscious shift away from, those kind of materials um, and looking towards, you know, more eco options. I think retailers um, are becoming more focused on that as well. You know, Boots, our UK main partner, very focused on sustainability, which is great. Um, You know, their missions include um, for Christmas 2020, removing plastic windows and um, excess single-use plastic packaging. So that, you know, all of those initiatives are filtering down um, to brands. Some brands care more than others. Um, I think hand-in-hand with that, the kind of like vegan cruelty-free messaging um, is becoming more prevalent. Um, And that isn't necessarily directly linked to the environment as such. You know, it doesn't necessarily directly play into our carbon conversation. But I think what it does mean is that there's a general awareness around some of the the badder practices in beauty um, and some of the unnecessary ones, um, for example, including animal byproducts in your beauty products. So I think there's a general um, enhanced awareness around certain ethical issues in beauty as well. Um, A lot of people are aware of China, for example, now, and, you know, a consumer Mm. will always say, do you sell into China? Because they know that if you do, you have to test on animals. And that's something that has been a consumer awareness um, that has just peaked, you know, only recently. So there's, there's really not enough change going on. Um, Packaging is is one small part of the puzzle. Um, and as you said, you know, brands tend to focus on that, make a small change and then think that they've ticked the box. Um, there's not enough happening, you know, in terms of manufacturing, looking at green energy. Um, you speak to, I think there's only one or two manufacturers in the UK that use um, green energy to power their plants. Um, which, you know, if you think about the carbon emissions versus, you know, traditional fossil fuel powered energy um, versus renewable um, green energy, I mean, it's it's insane. A lot of manufacturers don't have recycling policies or water uses policies or waste management policies. Um, and that's really where things are going on um, at that industrial level. Um, we think about air freighting, you know, the amount of goods that are being air freighted um, for speed, for convenience, um, this kind of fast fashion mentality that beauty has. So there is still a lot to do and there aren't really any brands talking about anything beyond packaging. I, I would be hard pressed to find any brand that's talking as far as, you know, sustainable procurement or yeah, you know, how they power their manufacturing um, or what their carbon footprint is. So there's, there is still a lot of work to do, but it is encouraging to see at least conversations starting to happen. 
Definitely. There is still a lot of work to do. On that note, what are some of the big changes that you think we can expect to see from the beauty industry in the coming years? I think, yeah, the sustainability conversation will just continue on. Um, I think, you know, packaging is um, not ideal, but it's a good place to start. And it's encouraging that, um, you know, the press have picked up um, like quite heavily on calling out brands um, with bad practices. You know, we've now got Instagram accounts dedicated entirely to picking up on brands um, doing things wrong. Not always. (laughs) (laughs) Stay laundry. (laughs) Sometimes in a bit of a like fear mongering way. But anyway, you know, just the the idea of the the fact that, you know, you um, you can't get away with bad practices as easily as you could now. And and there's a growing consumer awareness. So I think um, that will only continue um which is exciting you know for us it's not it's not a competitive advantage Uh, it it does work in that way at the moment but we would much rather all of our peers are doing the same as us like we say carbon copy us we dare you (laughs) it's like that's we're open to it you know so um the sustainability conversation will grow um we'll pick up momentum as consumers pick it up um I think outside of sustainability, when it comes to performance, to ingredients and beauty, like I think the gap between clean and science will will continue to um, decrease. So, um, whereas a couple of years ago, you know, the conversation with natural and clean um, felt very far away from the sort of like scientific kind of clinical um, skincare that we've been very used to. I think that it will continue to um, become smaller, and we'll start to see a lot of overlap now in very like science-based natural and clean beauty which I think is really exciting I think it's definitely where the kind of like natural and clean industry needed to go Um, and it sort of bridges um, the performance question that I think was kind of held over the natural industry for a long time um, in that like natural can be advanced and innovative and um, scientific and clinical Um, so I think yeah formulations brands brands kind of um, values around their skincare will continue to sort of move in that direction as more and more people want something clean and and natural but equally want to make sure that they believe that it's going to work and veganism in beauty I think um, particularly Mm -hmm. given the current um, crisis it's going to become more and more important for people um so i think we will start to see that become more of a um a need to have and not a nice to have my final question what is next for bybee oh, what isn't next for bybee we've got a lot got a lot of stuff to do um i think for us you know we're just continuing to focus on growth um i think the we're really excited about the future potential of the brand. It feels really relevant. Um, the conversations we're having are really timely. They're really, you know, early on. Um, and a lot of the conversations we're having haven't been had yet in beauty, but that excites us. Um, and of course, we're focused on delivering great skincare products. We're constantly pushing the boundary of what we can achieve in natural. We've got, you know, as Elsie said, a fantastic team. Um, that is working on our formulation. So first and foremost, we, you know, we want to continue to deliver best in class skincare. Um, we've got a ton of product launching. Um, we've, we're going to have a really, really great assortment by the end of the year and then continuing on into next year. Um, and then we're focused on, you know, expanding the brand. So, you know, we've got great international retailers um, and I think probably the US is, is going to be the next focus for 2021. Um, we're just, you know, navigating the current climate, um, you know, corona and lockdown, 
through a lot of things that ask a lot of challenges, but you know, as ever, we've been able to be tenacious and, and bear through those challenges. So um, we're going to come out of lockdown, definitely a stronger business. Um, and then from there, it's just, you know, we want to knock those unsustainable fast fashion esque brands off the shelves. So we're going to go do that in mass retailers. <laughs> so see you later. <laughs> That was Elsie and Dominika, founders of Bybe Beauty, which you can find on Instagram at Bybe Beauty. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.